0: Are we good? All righty. First Samuel chapter two. Let's turn there. First Samuel chapter number two. Church, have you enjoyed the series the last couple weeks that Pastor Tyler's been in? Okay. Sorry, Pastor Tyler. Have you enjoyed the series Pastor Tyler's been in? the last bit helpful in Ephesians, in First Samuel. And the book of Psalms, I've, I've really been helped by it. I hope you're reading along with him. I know that's his desire. That's why he does the pastor preview videos. Uh, so if you're looking for something to read during the week between church services, I think I know a couple books I can recommend to you. Uh, Ephesians, First Samuel, and the book of Psalms. And uh, that'll be a help to you. I know it's helped me to read through those and to hear him preach it. And so we'll be in First Samuel chapter number 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 36, we'll get there in a minute. I don't know if you've heard of Earl Campbell, but Earl Campbell is a football star of days gone by. He was the sixth of 11 children in his household. And uh, after losing his father at age 11, one of the things he did uh, to pick up and kind of distract his mind from the loss that he incurred was he started playing football in Tyler, Texas. And he started playing as a linebacker, but eventually he moved to the position of running back. And Earl Campbell was really a legend in the making, even from the beginning of his high school career. Uh, Barry Switzer, who is the legendary coach of OU, said that Earl Campbell was one of two guys that he saw playing in high school that he thought could go straight from high school to the NFL. Now that's saying something, because you got to have some size and some strength and some power and some skill to do that. And Earl Campbell eventually was named Mr. Football USA because he was the best high school football player in America. He eventually got beat out by OU and got recruited uh, to Texas University, the University of Texas. Had a successful career there. Went on to the NFL. Had a successful career there as well. He was a superstar drafted by the Houston Oilers in the first round. And ESPN ranks him as the seventh best player of all time in the NFL. And he was eventually inducted into the Hall of Fame. Now, I said that Barry Switzer saw two guys that he thought could go straight from high school into the NFL. One of them was Earl Campbell. And the second one is a guy you probably haven't heard of. His name is Marcus Dupree. Now, if you're an OU fan, you might have heard of him. Move on, yeah. Notice which one is the better player at which school. Anyway, sorry. Marcus Dupree uh, was uh, originated from the small town of Philadelphia, Mississippi. He started playing football, I believe, in eighth grade, and uh, it didn't take long for him with his size and his strength, and and honestly, as big as he was, even as a young man, he was very, very fast. He ran some crazy 40-yard dash times. And so he was a very, very strong football player in high school as well, Uh, so much so that he was on covers of magazines. And they say in a documentary they made about him that there was literally a a drive-through line at his house, his little double-wide trailer house in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And he would have coaches from the biggest universities in America walk into his living room. they give him 15 minutes to give their spiel. All right, next coach, come in. And he had hundreds of coaches, literally, trying to recruit him to play ball for them. And the attention was so competitive among college coaches that actually the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma sent one of their assistant coaches to live in Philadelphia, Mississippi full-time just to impress him and get, uh, give him favors and say, hey, you should come play for our school full-time for several weeks just to try and get Marcus Dupree on their team. Well, when he had the choice between the University of Texas and OU, he chose OU. And he went there as a freshman under Coach Barry Switzer and Uh, Barry Switzer wanted to sit him out a couple games just to kind of show him that he's not all that. And eventually he got back on the starting lineup in the seventh game of the season. And he just took off from there. He set records in the Fiesta Bowl. He had 70, 60, 70, 80-yard runs left and right. He was a star player on the team within a matter of weeks. Well, before the Fiesta Bowl, uh, the team took a two-week break. And there were some attitude issues brewing in Marcus Dupree because he didn't feel like he got along with uh, Coach Switzer and he felt like that uh, the coaches didn't understand the talent that he had and so he went home and he just chilled. Put on 15 pounds, which is a lot of weight when you're an all-star athlete. It comes back, Fiesta Bowl, overweight, out of breath and still manages to set a rushing record in the Fiesta Bowl that stands to this day. And then the summer happens, or the, the break. The attitude problems are brewing, and he comes back for a second season. He shows up late, misses the team picture, and he shows up. And then he gets hit in a game against the University of Texas, and he just disappears. The all-star running back for OU just disappears. And eventually, what did he do? He quit. University of Oklahoma football tried to transfer schools. They said, hey, you can't play for two seasons since you transferred midseason. And the guy who was supposed to be Earl Campbell isn't known for football very well. In fact, ESPN made a documentary about him. You know what they titled it? They called him the best that never was. Two football players, very similar origins high school all-stars, big size, big speed, but two very, very different destinies. And you know what made the difference between Earl Campbell and Marcus Dupree? Is if you watch the documentary, here's what happened. Marcus Dupree made a series of bad decisions that led him to a bad destiny. In our text tonight, we have a tale of two destinies. We have the sons of Eli... That are introduced to us in verse number 12. And then we have kind of an adoptive son of Eli. His name is Samuel. We've learned about him the last couple weeks and his backstory. And what the text is going to show us is that the sons of Eli are on their way to one type of destiny of destruction. And it's going to also show how Samuel, even in the midst of ungodliness, even in the midst of people who didn't care about God, that Samuel is going to be on his own way to a different kind of destiny. And here's what the text is going to ask us tonight. Is what destiny are you headed towards? What destiny are you headed towards? Are you headed toward a destiny of destruction from sin? Or are you headed toward a destiny of blessing from God? How many of you want to be on a destiny, on the way to a destiny of blessing from God? And so we're going to see in the the text tonight is what did Samuel do that put him on a track to receive God's favor and God's blessing? And what did Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, do That put them on the fast track to destruction. I want you to look at verse number 11. It says this in 1 Samuel chapter number 2. and verse number 11 says, And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So we get the idea very quickly in the text that these aren't good guys. It says they were sons of Belial. That's like an Old Testament way of saying they were the sons of the devil. Now that's a great term for someone who's a spiritual leader in God's house, isn't it? Sons of the devil. And they knew not the Lord. And then we're going to find in verses 13 through 16 that these men who claimed to be spiritual leaders of Israel, who would have been in the line to be the next high priest of Israel, that the text is going to show us that they totally botched the worship of Jehovah God. Look at verse number 13. Here's the first way that they did it. That instead of allowing God to get his offering first, they decided that before God gets his sacrifice, that they would come in and get their own piece of the pie. Look at verse 13. It says, In the priest's custom... With the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came. And while the flesh was in seething, with a flesh hook with three teeth in his hand. Let me give you a modern day. It was a big barbecue fork. You know those three pong forks that you use when you're grilling out? That's what they had, a big old barbecue fork. And look at verse 14. And he struck it into the pan, or kettle, or cauldron, or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So here's what the text is saying. you got to understand the background here, that in the book of Leviticus, it's very, very clear what meat, when someone came and offered an animal, was reserved for the priests. Right? So the priest didn't get a paycheck. They got a place to live, and they got meat from the sacrifices. That's how they fed themselves, fed their families. And so the law was very clear that when you brought a lamb, let's say, that the the breast meat or the rib meat that that went to the priest and then would give you'd give him the shoulder meat as well but here we see eli and his sons they weren't content with that that they wanted more than what god said that they could have And and so they they weren't satisfied with what God had given them and and they didn't really care what God's word said. So they said, hey, I'm going to take a big barbecue fork and I'm going to stick it into the pot while you're boiling the sacrifice and whatever comes up on that fork is mine. Here's the idea, that they disobeyed the clear commands of scripture. They disobeyed the clear commands of scripture. But here's the next thing that they did, is that before God was offered the fat of the sacrifice that the sons of Eli decided they were going to take the raw meat that had the fat on it, the good stuff, and they were going to take that for themselves. Look at verse 15. It says, Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest. Now listen to this next phrase. For he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. You know what the idea is there? Is that he wasn't content receiving the provisions that God had given them. And he, and he basically had this entitlement mentality that I, be, I should receive what belongs to God alone. That he took what belonged to God for himself. And then here's the next thing. Look at verse 16. As if that's not bad enough. It says, and if any man... Uh, look at verse... Actually, the end of verse 15. He's saying, hey, I'm going to take this meat. Now look at verse 16. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, then take as much as thy soul desires. So here's what they're saying. If someone's offering their meat to God, and they're saying, hey, let me take that before you sacrifice it, and someone understood the Bible well enough to know, like, hey, you, you're supposed to take that after I offer the sacrifices, the guy essentially he says, you better give it to me or I'm going to kill you. Now, I don't know about you, that doesn't sound like a spiritual leader to me, does It doesn't sound like, Someone who's honoring God with their life does it. And then verse 17 really shows us their heart because it says this. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very, what's the next word, church? Great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It gets worse. Not only are they defiling the sacrifices that God had clearly commanded them how to do it, but look at verse number 22, I believe it is, that it, it got even worse because the Bible says that they were laying with the women that assembled at the door of the congregation. These were immoral men. So not only did they take what belonged to God, not only did they disobey the clear commands of God, but they, were, they, were, they had sin in their life that was very serious before God that they refused to deal with. And all this was happening under the nose of Eli, their dad, who was the high priest. You could think of him maybe as like a, a pastor. He was the head dog, the head honcho. And Eli gets a little bit concerned. He catches wind of what's happening. And he decides he's going to confront these young men. Look at verse number 23. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings, by all this people, nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. Now pay attention to what he says in verse 25, this is a really key idea. He says, if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father. Here's what Eli was saying. To his sons. He said, Sons, you do something wrong to another man, you could plead your case before a judge. But if you mess with God, there is nobody to plead your case. Church, do you understand when we dishonor God directly, that God takes that very seriously. And here God was gracious enough maybe to prick the heart of Eli or bring it to his attention. And, And we could look at this text and say, you know... Did he really care? And and he didn't do anything about it. He didn't fire them or anything. So Eli had his own issues. But God was trying to get a hold of them. But the text says in verse 25 that they refused to listen. That when their sin was brought before them, they didn't deal with it. And here's what I think is the idea here is they thought they could get away with it. They, they thought that they were the exception to the rule. But here's the truth, church. When you don't deal with your sin, God finds a way to deal with it. Right. Right. When you don't listen to correction that is brought into your life, God finds a way to get your attention, doesn't he? And that's exactly what he does in the text. I want you to look at verse number 27. A man of God appears on the scene. It says this in verse 27. There came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord... And I want want to rehash what he says in verse 27-28. He basically says this, Eli, do you understand how good God has been to you? Of all the people in Israel, God chose your family to have the privilege of ministering in the temple. And, And not only that, God allowed you to have the blessings of serving in the temple. You got to receive the sacrifices and eat part of those. I mean, these guys ate lamb and And good bird, you know, cooked up. I mean, that sounds like a man's dream right there, right? And so you got to enjoy the blessings of God. And yet he says, that wasn't good enough for you. In verse 29, he says, wherefore kick ye at my offerings? Why do you dishonor and disrespect the offerings that I've laid out so clearly in Scripture? And then here's what the man of God does. Because they wouldn't listen, because they kept dishonoring the Lord... Because they kept disrespecting God's commands, the man of God says, God is going to bring judgment and destruction into your life. I want you to look at verse number 31. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm. The idea there, it's a metaphor. Your, your descendants won't have any strength. Your household will have no prominence. Verse 31 and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thine house. Look at verse 32. He says the same thing. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation, and all the wealth which God shall give Israel. And there shall not be an old man in thine house forever. And the man of thine, whom I shall not cut off from mine altar, shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart. And here it is again. And all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. Here's what what he's saying to Eli. God is determined to bring destruction to your household. I'm not going to let anyone reach old age. That all of your sons, all of your grandsons, all of your descendants will die a young death because of the sins that you committed unto God. Now that sounds serious, doesn't it? But then he says in verse 35, essentially, or sorry, verse 34, he says, on top of that, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who've dishonored me, not only am I going to judge them, but I'm going to, bring judgment unto you. I'm going to let your sons die the same day. I'm going to multiply your grief because you've honored them above me. And so when you place something above me, God says, I have a way of taking that thing out of your life. And then look at verse 35. He strips them of the priesthood. He says, and I'll raise me up a faithful priest because you couldn't do it, Eli. I'm going to have someone take your place. Your family will not have access to me in the priesthood. I'm going to put someone else in their spot. Now look at verse 36. He says, not only that, now you're going to not be a priest, but I'm going to make you uh, poor and, and, and lowly and you'll be wishing, you'll be wishing you had honored me. Look at verse 36. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him, that's the priest, for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, put me, I pray thee, in one of the priest's offices, that I may eat a piece of bread. He says, you'll be so broke, you'll come crawling on your knees, begging the priest to give you a piece of bread. How's that for a gracious and loving God? But here's the truth in the text, that when you dishonor God, God will bring destruction into your life. When you dishonor God, he will bring destruction into your life. And and here's the idea. Look at verse 30. Why? Because the question has to be asked, why would God do this? Like, this is very severe. How did these people end up at this destination where they lost everything? Everything. Where where their life was totally brought down low. And here's the answer in verse 30. It's the key idea of the text. Here's what the man of God says to Eli. At the end of verse 30. He says, be it far from me. For them that honor me, God says, I will honor. But they that despise me or dishonor me shall be lightly esteemed. Here's the principle. That your destiny is determined by your attitude toward God. That how you view God... And how you treat God and your attitude toward God will ultimately reveal where you end up in life. You know the best indicator of where someone will go in life? It's not their money. It's not where they come from. It's not their race. It's not their gender. The best indicator of where your life will end up is how you treat your God. The attitude and the honor with which you give him. And here's my concern, church. And I think here's the idea of the text. That there could be people who are in God's house, who serve in God's house, who lead God's people, who lead the saints, and yet in their heart, you may not see it on the outside, but in their heart there's a dishonor toward God. There's an attitude toward God that you may not see on the outside, but if you left, leave that thing unchecked, it will begin to spiral out of control just like Hophni and Phinehas and you, you just look a couple of years down the line and that attitude, that dishonor toward God will lead to somebody's destruction in this church. You say, well, I'm not wreaking havoc in the church and I'm not doing what Hophni and Phinehas did. Well, you know, I I started looking over the text because I thought the same thing, right? Am I really them? Because I like to identify with Samuel, you know, the blessing and the favor of God. And I started thinking, what are some symptoms of dishonoring God? Now, just look through the text, and I'm going to give a couple of them to you. Maybe God would prick your heart, and you would see yourself in one of these. Here's where, what's clearly in the text, a symptom of a heart that dishonors God. Number one is you refuse to obey the clear commands of Scripture. And that's what Hophni and Phinehas were doing, weren't they? I mean, God was very clear. Hey, you, you take the breast meat and the shoulder meat and nothing more. The rest is for me. And yet, here's what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They're saying, yeah, God said that, but. And they did their own thing. And wouldn't you agree, church, that there are tendencies in our own lives where God has clearly commanded what we should do in a situation, yet in our own pride, in our own selfishness, we set aside God's commands and we refuse to obey him. I was reading Ephesians 6. Where it talks about God's clear commands to the home. And all this is under the umbrella of submitting ourselves to the Lord. And it says, children, obey your parents. Well, that's a pretty clear command. But man, how many times as as a kid I thought, nah, not me. I'm the exception. God may have said that, but I've got my own plan. And I've got my own ideas. And so I'm just going to set aside what God wants. And I'm just going to do my own thing. Or then Paul moves to the marriage. He says, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And yet, isn't it true, men, that so often the Spirit of God pricks our heart and says, hey, you need to consider your wife in this situation. Hey, you need to seek her counsel in this situation. Yet, we think we've got it all figured out, and we just do what we want. We let her deal with the consequences. Am I right? Scripture's clear. Scripture's clear. Wives submit. submit. And how many times, Pastor Tyler, do you, do you deal with couples that's like, well, I would submit if he, if he was a better husband, I'd really submit. Hey, I don't think God put an asterisk in Ephesians chapter 6 and said, submit to your husbands if, if they're an amazing husband. Right. Am I okay? Yeah, you're right. You know, Scripture's pretty clear about lying. But man, how often, like, it just happens, right? Someone asks us, hey, where were you? And we're like, Oh, uh, let me not tell them why I didn't show up. I'm just gonna lie, right? Sure. Hey, are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Whoa, lie. But well, we refuse to obey the clear commands of Scripture. Here's the second uh, thought in the text. I think of dishonoring God is that you take what rightfully belongs to God. Man, what is? What are some things we take that rightfully belong to God? <laughs> How about our money? Can I remind you that that the Bible says to honor the Lord with all thine substance and with the first fruits of thy increase. Yeah, you may be talented, you make good money, that's great. But God allowed you to do that. And really God has a claim on 100% of it, yet God asks us to sacrificially give, if, if you could even call it a sacrifice, 10%. And yet so often we take what belongs to God and say, well, I forgot. Well, maybe you should make it up. Hey, maybe you should realize that that was God's in the first place and you don't have a right to do with it what you will. That, hey, bills may be hard and life may get tough, but you honor the Lord and we're going to find out in a few minutes when you honor God, God has a way of blessing and sprinkling his favor upon your life. We don't steer away from talking about the tithe, but I think sometimes we forget that, that God has given us the abilities and the talents that we have in our life. And yet, so often, in a very similar way, we hoard those. Like, we, we, when God has equipped us and blessed us with different abilities and gifts, and yet we come in and we don't use them to edify anybody. Right? If God's blessed you with the ability to sing, like, you should be up here. Right? And some of you are like, no, he hasn't. Well, please stay down there. <laughs> I speak on behalf of our pastor. But maybe God's given you the ability to encourage somebody. And we just talked about it this morning that so often we, we think positive things, but we don't say them to people. Right, right. And we have the tendency to use God-given abilities and talents and we hoard them. How about our time? God set aside a day to honor him. And so often we have this tug, don't we? I know you're here on a Sunday night on Labor Day weekend. Obviously, you care about God's house, but I I know this well. You will all face this struggle sometime in the next couple weeks, where it's like, man, I've got my time, and God's time seems to be encroaching on my time. Yet, let us not forget that God uh, deserves all of your time. and It all belongs to him. Here's the other one I thought of. Uh, How do you know if you're dishonoring the Lord? Maybe it's this, how Eli responded. You don't take sin seriously. We, we see it in verse number 29 that the man of God said to Eli that you honor your sons above me. And the idea there is that, yeah, Eli confronted his sons, but you know what he should have done? He should have kicked their tail out of the temple. You know, I didn't, because he didn't take sin that seriously. And, and I wonder, I, I just feel this burden that how often do we just not deal with our sin? Let me ask you this. When was the last time you even confessed your sin to God? You know why I asked that question? Because I've been in counseling appointments. People are like, I need help with this sin. I'm like, have you confessed it to God? No. Whoa, we got a big problem. That, that you're convicted of sin, but you don't even confess it to your God. Listen, that, my friend, is a bad, bad symptom of a heart that at the end of the day, the text reveals doesn't honor God like it should. And here's the idea of the text, that when you dishonor God, you are on a path toward destruction, that you are destined for destruction. I'm thankful that we don't have to face the destruction of hell because our sins were judged at the cross, amen? And that we don't have to worry, hey, we don't have to worry if our sin condemns us to hell, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. But church, would you agree tonight that even if you're a believer, sin is just as capable as bringing destruction into your life? Sin destroys families, sin destroys marriages, sin destroys churches, sin destroys ministries, it destroys harmony among people, it even destroys your physical body. And here's my burden tonight, that I know that maybe none of us would identify and say, we are exactly where Hophni and Phinehas were at. But here's the problem, I want you never to get there. Man, and would to God that we would deal with heart attitudes that dishonor God before they lead us into destruction. Man, would to God that we would deal with lust in our life before it destroys us. That we would deal with our anger before it destroys our relationships. That we would deal with our lying before it alienates us from our family and our friends. That we would deal with covetousness before it makes us broken and in debt. You know what so often I think Satan does is that the reason that you don't deal with your sin is because Satan is really crafting He uses shame. Because you hear a preacher preach hard about sin, as we should, but you, you, you feel a little scared to get help. Well, they, they'll think different about me. Hey, listen, that is not from the Spirit of God telling you that. That is not of God. Can I just encourage you and just exhort you as best I know how to with my words, please, please, if you are struggling with sin, if there's a sin that keeps getting the victory in your life, would you find someone to get you help? Man, you've got dozens of people in our church who are mature believers in Jesus Christ that can walk with you through that. You have a pastoral staff that would love the opportunity to help you and minister to you spiritually and help you gain the victory before those sins lead to your destruction. Would you agree we live in a culture that dishonors God and it's in a broader sense is on its way to destruction? Yep. You know what I'm thankful for is that it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter uh, who your influences are, that you can be like Samuel. Right. And even in the midst of a Hophni and Phineas culture, you can honor God quietly, humbly, and experience the blessing of God. Of the Lord. Yes, the text shows that those who dishonor God are destined for their destruction. But here's what else it shows. That those who honor God are destined to receive his blessing. What was verse 30? It says, those who honor me, God says, I will honor. Look at verse number 11. It's just tucked away in the passage so quietly. Verse 11 says this at the end. It says, and the child did minister unto the Lord. Before Eli the priest. Look at verse number 18. But Samuel, what's the next word, church? He ministered. He ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. I want you to look at verse number 19. Not only was Samuel honoring God, but his mom did. It says, moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. The the reason that the author pointed that out is because not only did Samuel honor the Lord, but Hannah continued to honor the Lord. Hey, she gave up her son to God. And yet she still loved God. And still wanted to offer sacrifice to him. And every single year, right on time, she came in and honored the Lord and sacrificed and served the Lord. Look at verse number 26. I want you to see this, that when Samuel and his family honored the Lord, God blessed them. Look, and Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Here's what God did. As Samuel ministered quietly, humbly, God blessed him. God gave him favor, not only in his own side, but with men. People began to notice that Samuel was a man of God. Amen. But then, here, here's the amazing thing. As Hannah and their family served the Lord, look at verse number 20, that Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife. And here's a woman who said, God, if you'll just give me one son, I'll give him back to you. You know what God did? He said, let me give you five more kids. <laughs> hey, that's a quiverful. Yeah. Yeah. A woman who is barren, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you five more children because you honored me and church can i can i just encourage you with this idea that what matters to god is not how big your service is to him but just where your heart is at hey listen israel didn't notice samuel in fact if it wasn't for the text we wouldn't have known about him at this stage in life but samuel quietly honored the lord and ministered before the lord Hey, nobody knew about Hannah. And probably the only people who knew her thought she was crazy. I mean, she gave away her kid. But God saw her. Humbly serving. Honoring the Lord. Putting God first in her life. Hey, can I just encourage you just have a heart that wants to honor the Lord. You know, I was thinking about this in parenting. We talk about this a lot in our class. That a lot of times our tendency as parents is to cultivate a heart in our children to honor us right? Obey me. Respect me. Do what I say. But you know what the Lord convicted me? That the most valuable thing I can cultivate in my own life, in the life of my two little girls, is a heart that wants to honor God. Because the very clearest indicator of where you'll go in life is what your attitude is toward God. Where's God on your priority list? Hey, hey when your kid's ball game conflicts with God's schedule... Who's top on the priority list? When your financial desires and God's financial priorities conflict, who's on the top of the priority list? You want to know if your heart honors God? It's who wins the battle. When God, what God wants comes into conflict with what I want. And that happens all the time. But doesn't God have a way? When we honor Him, when we serve Him, He sprinkles His blessing and His favor upon our life? Listen, sometimes that's tangible. Right? I mean, we, we've heard stories, man, God blessed my giving and he blessed me financially. But you know what? Sometimes God's blessings aren't tangible. You know, a wife who's in a home and she's, she's married to a Hophni or to a Phineas. And she's honoring the Lord. She's doing what God has called her to do. She's humbly serving. She's being faithful to church, even though her husband doesn't care. You know, sometimes God doesn't always bless in a tangible sense. Sometimes that man doesn't change his heart. But you know what sometimes he does? He gives her a joy in the midst of that. She raises a child that grows to honor and love God, even though this child grew up with an ungodly father. And sometimes, man, he turns the heart of that husband. hey, I don't know how God will bless you. I really don't. I'm not, I'm not up here preaching prosperity. Hey, if you honor God with your money, God will give you all sorts of money. That's not at all in the Bible. But I can, I can promise you this, that God is no man's debtor. Can I say that again? God is no man's debtor. That you will never, and I say this clearly, you will never get to the end of your life and say that God owes you something. So how's God going to work this out? I'm trying to honor him. Seems like I'm giving him so much. You know what Psalm 1 says is that the blessed man, he shall bring forth his fruit in his season. You know what that means? Sometimes if you don't see the blessing, the season's not here yet. Everyone's got a different season when God will bring their blessing, but I can tell you this, that there will come a day... When you stand before God in heaven and God will bless you and and shower his approval upon you if you honor him and you will never think, man, I wish God had given me his blessing sooner. You know what the Bible says we'll do? We'll fall at his feet. And every blessing God gives us, we'll just put back at him. Say, God, just to be in your presence is enough of a blessing. Here's my challenge to you. Just honor the Lord. Hey, I know there may be some small areas in your life where it's like, man, this isn't honoring the Lord. But can I just challenge you? Please deal with it now, before you end up destined for your destruction from your own sins, like Hophni and Phineas. Let's pray.